0: Okay, we are back on another edition of the Edlo Podcast. Hit subscribe if you haven't yet. I have Paige Cleek. Hello, Paige. How are you?
1: Hello, I'm great. How are you doing?
0: Uh, great. I'm glad that you accepted the invitation to come on. You were highly recommended by your state <laughs> president to come on and and talk about uh, various subjects. So I'm excited. And also, you have a connection to a couple of former guests, uh, Kevin and Debbie Evers. Yeah. So that's fun. Now you are, so you're Debbie's niece? Yes. Okay. So, so, so you have Deb- some sex line in you.
1: Yeah. So Debbie is my mom's youngest sister.
0: Okay. All right. And then uh, your parents, uh, where do they live?
1: My mom is in Citrus Heights. So she is still right around the corner from my grandparents, same house where Debbie grew up.
0: Oh wow. Oh so so Stan and uh, he still lives there. Same house?
1: Yep. Yep, same house.
0: Man, it, it, they uh Stan Sedgwick is so impressive to me because I uh, Did you know the Summer Hazes as well? Do you know any of them?
1: I know of uh, them. I don't know them very well.
0: Okay. So the Summer Hazes are another one because they're they had a gaggle of kids on a on a like on a, on a teacher's budget and I just it's impressive that they were able to do that.
1: Yes. So. Yeah. My grandpa's the best. My grandparents are both the best. They, they basically raised my brothers and I, but mm-hmm. they're awesome. Like nobody is a harder worker than my grandpa.
0: Yeah. So now grandparents, uh, do you sets or do you just kind of stay, stay close to one?
1: Sorry, you cut out for a second. What was the question?
0: Do you, your, your grandparents, do you know both sets pretty well or is it just the one?
1: So I grew up with kind of both sets like mom's side and dad's side. Um, my grandparents on my dad's side have passed away and I'm not really in contact with anybody from that side of the family. So usually when I talk about my family, my grandparents, that's all my mom's side.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, that's, that's the way I grew up too. Uh, my grandparents on my mother's side were incredibly involved, like really involved. And then um, my dad's, I just did, I met him, met my dad's dad once. So, so <laughs> yeah. So uh, grandparents hold a special place in my heart because of the ones that were so heavily involved, you know?
1: Totally. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. So um, now you grew up then in Citrus Heights? Yes.
1: Yeah, so I grew up, we actually lived at my grandparents' house for a few years when I was younger, my mom and my brothers and I. Um, And then after that, we moved just right around the corner from them. So same house my mom still lives in is right around the corner from where my grandparents have lived for, I don't know, probably 40 years, over 40 years.
0: Yeah. So you are in your home stake still. Yes. And that
1: is not something that I thought would happen. I was like, I am not going to live here. I am out of this place as soon as possible. There's no way I'm coming back here. So it's really, really interesting because in our ward and in our stake, there's all these people who I grew up with their kids. I went to high school with their kids or like they were my youth leaders in girls camp and stake activities and things like that. So it's kind of weird, but I think I've adjusted to it and gotten used to that by now.
0: Yeah, that's, I, I did the same thing. Um, I, ba- I bounced in and out of, I was from the Carmichael Stake, and I bounced in and out my home ward the whole time. And it's just so weird when you're there and they knew you as a kid and they know all the things you did that you messed up when you were a teenager and they bring it up in front of your kids and you know, and you're like, okay, Ooh, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I literally had someone get up. So I had a little stint where, uh, I was a little bit of a rabble rouser and I ended up, uh, uh invading girls camp with a few of my friends and mm-hmm. uh, we got caught we got in trouble you know all that stuff and then i think i was probably 30 years old sitting in a in a pew when someone got up and bore their testimony and talked about me going to girls camp and i'm like you gotta be kidding me i'm never gonna lie you know down <laughs> so yeah that's interesting so did you uh now, now you grew up uh so close to your grandparents when you moved in, were there still kids at home or were they was yeah. a busy house? Huh?
1: I don't remember super well. Cause I was little, I was probably five to seven, I would say about that. Um, I know there were at least a couple of them and Debbie and I were actually roommates. Debbie and I shared a room when I was little. So
0: we uh we have an extra special bond. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. How now uh, so you shared a room, how did you share a room for?
1: Honestly, I don't remember. I would, oh. Debbie could answer that question. I was little, so okay. my whole like memories a, a little off.
0: I see. Okay. And then you moved down the street and mm-hmm. uh, tell me what it was like, I mean, as a teenager, give me a sense of what it was like growing up as a member of the church.
1: Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question, because that's going to be different for everybody, depending on where you live, what your situation is. but um I, I don't know. That's like all I knew. So I didn't really know like what else to compare it to. I was never really like the rebellious kid or like getting into trouble or anything like that. I was mm-hmm. I was a pretty good rule follower for the most part. Definitely had a little attitude and definitely like to push back at times. Um, but overall, I was really shy as a kid. So... Growing up, like painfully shy, painfully quiet, like could not talk to anybody. I actually had selective mutism when I was in about kindergarten, probably. um And so, basically, what that is, I see you're looking a little. Yeah, I'm like, well,
0: I'm like selective mutism. What is yeah. that? Never heard that? So,
1: I was fully able to have a conversation with. Somebody, if I wanted to, but I just didn't. So, there's probably just a handful of people I would talk to. I talked to my parents, I talked to my brothers, I would talk to my grandpa, not my grandma, not the one who picked us up from school and took care of us after school, not her. Hmm. Um, And I had maybe like two friends that I would talk to, but I didn't talk to anybody else. And so that was really interesting.
0: Um, Wait, real quick. So, how does that develop and how do you get over that? Does it just get over it naturally or?
1: Um, I would say, in terms of how it developed, probably stems from like trauma, mm. some like unresolved trauma, and that's like a uh, kid's way of processing it. Or uh, probably was my way of asserting some control when I didn't have any control. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Uh
0: huh. Uh huh. Yeah. That makes um. Sense. Go ahead. No, no, that makes sense. And and it, this is something I've never heard before. I've had a bunch of mental health people on and that's something that I've never come across. So does that something that I, a lot of these things that happen, even, even some stuff that happens in speech therapy, like lisps and things like that sometimes can just kind of, you overcome it naturally. Did you just naturally overcome it or did you have to go through stuff to get, get through it?
1: kind of a combination. So it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like a speech delay. I could mm-hmm. fully like speak perfectly fine. It wasn't like an intellectual or like learning disability or anything like that. Um, it w- I think it was more so just like me trying to have control a little bit. Um, I remember in elementary school, I went to play therapy and I think my older brother did as well. Um, so we had this lady, we would go and play and she would try to get us to talk to her and we wouldn't, (laughs) also very stubborn. So that didn't help. But eventually I just was like, kind of tired of this, like tired of being this weird kid who doesn't talk to anybody. So I would say probably in about third grade, I started like talking to my teachers at school, like a normal level of weird, shy kid. Um... (laughs) Yeah, but I was still very shy, very, very shy all the way up until probably high school.
0: Hmm. Wow. So um, when just if you can remember, when you're going through that, let's say someone comes up to you and approaches you when you have selective mutism, is it a conscious choice to not talk to them, or is there some anxiety involved, or can you remember?
1: I don't quite remember. What I do remember is, like, I would answer them in my head. And I'm like, why don't you know what the answer is? <laughs> like, I'm answering you in my head. Uh-huh. Um, I think there was some of it where I felt like I physically couldn't do it. And I felt hmm. like I, I actually couldn't. Hmm. Um, and I don't know. That's something that I probably need to process a little bit more in therapy, I would say.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. You know, it's it, the more I talk to people about this, it's so... The way trauma, um, the way it manifests is so individual and so fascinating for so Mm -hmm. many different people. And this is just another one that I've never heard of before. So I just am really interested, you know, uh, by it. Now, do do you feel like, so it sounds like you have, you've done different forms of therapy over your life to deal with some unresolved trauma. Is that fair?
1: Not a whole lot of like actual official, like organized therapy. Uh, definitely need to. <laughs> definitely should. I think everybody should. I think we everybody should. all do, should. yeah. Um, but I think I've done a lot of personal work, um, especially given my training in grad school, which we can get into that a little bit later, but I've kind of yeah. been able to, like, recognize some things in myself and, like, process that. Um, yeah, I think I'm pretty self-aware. So
0: that I got to tell you, though, the thing that's a, that I found so fascinating in talking to so many different people, both here and then just unofficially, just randomly talking to people is how far ahead you can be if you are self-aware. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have a really, really hard time seeing their part and not only seeing their part in things, but also like just, you know, they, they can point out things that other people are doing. But don't see it in themselves do you see what i'm saying so Absolutely. if you're i think that you you're you're way ahead of the game if you're self-aware <laughs> you know? oh yeah i
1: have plenty plenty of room to improve and my husband will tell you the same thing but
0: <laughs> no you, some you shouldn't, ways I'm very you shouldn't tell you He shouldn't <laughs> tell you but but he maybe you will no uh, so okay so growing up um you know in high school you're you're painfully shy and one mm-hmm. thing that i I found interesting about you is that you uh you were pretty heavily involved in the pageantry circuit. Yep. Now how does somebody who's painfully shy, afraid to talk to people, yeah end up on on doing pageants?
1: Yeah. So that is really what was transformative in my life and in bringing me out of that. Um so I was 15 when I started competing in pageants. I was a sophomore in high school. And I honestly don't even remember, like, how I got this idea or where this came from. But I think I was really searching for, like, my place or, like, my thing. Like, all of my friends had their thing. So there's the soccer player. There's the cheerleader. There's the kid who plays all these instruments, whatever. Everyone kind of has their thing. I'm like, I don't really have a thing. Like, I'm good at school and being quiet. <laughs> and that's about it. And so I was looking for something, I think, to do. If that makes sense, I think in high school and I guess teenagers are really wanting like uh, a sense of like belonging and purpose and community, I guess if you will. Um, and so I was kind of just looking for something to do, and I had joined tennis earlier that year. I was awful at it, absolutely terrible. I am not, I'm not athletic. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. I will say my second year of tennis, I did get
0: most improved player. So. Oh, there you go. But, but when, you're, when you're starting all the way down here, yeah. there, there's a really room. Yeah, but most improved player means you're not you're not quite as bad as you were.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, slightly less bad. So <laughs> I honestly don't know how it even came up, but there's this pageant. It's called Miss Teenage California. And I don't think it's even around anymore, but it used to be this huge thing. And it was a scholarship pageant. So if you win, you get $10,000, even if you're in, like, top – five top 10, you still get however much money for scholarships. And so I was like, I kind of want to try this. I I don't know. And I convinced my mom that it was a good idea. She didn't really think it was a good idea at first. She was like, what are you talking about? Why do you want to do this? This is weird. At least that's my memory of how that went. Maybe her side of the story is a little bit different.
0: Well, let me, (laughs) let me ask you real quick. We're we're on this topic first. I got to imagine Considering you as shy as you you were, that this came as a real big shock to people when you're when you're wanting to do it. Is that fair?
1: Probably, probably.
0: Yeah, and, and then also, what was it specifically, if you can remember, about about pageants that drew you to it?
1: I'm honestly not sure. I've always been very girly and like to dress up and that kind of stuff. So maybe it was that. Mm. Um, I used to watch toddlers and tiaras on TLC. I will say disclaimer. It's not that that's not what I did. That's not reality. This is not the same. Thing. I was, was
0: going to ask, I was like, was your mom, one of those like pageant moms no. who was, like, she into it? Okay.
1: No, All no, right. no, she yeah. actually tried to talk me out of it. At least my, my memory is that she tried to talk me out of it and she didn't really want me to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very expensive too. And so it was a big, um, big commitment, not just a time commitment, but financial commitment. Um, so somehow got her on board. I ended up competing. So first time when I was 15 and I was competing at this state pageant down in L.A., there were over 130 contestants. And my goal was to make the top 30. And I ended up making the top 10.
0: Oh, nice. First I shot
1: didn't have a clue what I was doing. So out of my element, not a clue. Like I went in blind. People mm-hmm. have coaches, people prepare for years for these kind of things. And I was like, well, let's just, let's just give it a shot and see. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's, and that's the thing, right? Like this It sounds to me, cause I don't know anything about pageants, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I played basketball and like, there was nothing more frustrating than someone who could just pick up a ball and naturally be talented at it. So were some of the other girls who, when they heard that, were they like a little like ticked off? They're like, what do you mean that you're just like coming in here without any, you know, coming in hot, just like, you know I mean? like just just coming in with no training and just getting to the top 10 was that?
1: I mean, I don't think so. I think pageants get, get a lot of hate and have kind of bad rap and people think that pageant girls are mean and catty and you're like out to get each other. And you're like, Trying to sabotage each other—it's very much not the case. Like everyone, at least the vast majority—you're going to get bad people here and there. There's going to be mean girls mixed in anywhere, but the vast majority of probably thousands of people that I've competed with or come across in pageants are so nice, so friendly, so supportive, like genuinely helping each other. Um, so yeah, not really, not really a whole lot of that that I experienced. Interesting.
0: That's that's really interesting just because, I mean, like, so I worked, I worked in a hair salon for a a while. And uh, in fact, Debbie was one of the ones who got me the mm -hmm. job. And so I'm working in a hair salon with all of these girls who I got to imagine those are, I don't know if they're the type, I don't know what the pageant girl type is, but I got to imagine they're not too dissimilar. And the drama though, that went along with like all of those hairdressers was really Surprising. Was there a lot of, was there any drama going on in the background ever? Or? I mean, there's
1: definitely drama like in the pageant world, but not as much as you would think, at least not as much that I really was like directly in contact with. It's more like hearing about stories and it's really not so much the girls themselves. It's usually like the crazy family members. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> way it is in most sports is exactly it's it's like the the mom from the from the bleachers screaming at the refs yeah
1: exactly that's exactly
0: wow so you get through this one and you you go your top 10 probably Mm -hmm. surprised right Mm -hmm. shocked absolutely so what's the next step then
1: so after that i was hooked i was like wait that was so fun like that was the most fun i've ever had that was great Um, and if I can do that well on my first try, not knowing what I'm doing, like maybe if I actually tried and prepared, then maybe I could be really good at this. So I competed again. I competed in that pageant three years and then I moved to college and it was just a bunch of other stuff after that. More pageants, more fun.
0: Now, when you're, when you're in a pageant though, um, What are you competing for? I know the one you were doing, you were competing for scholarships, but Mm -hmm. in other pageants, is there like a, are you just trying to win trophies? Is there sponsorships? Like how do people engage in a pageant life?
1: Yeah. So it really depends. There's a lot of different pageants and they're all different. They all have different areas of competition. So different things that you're doing. And they all have different prize packages or things like that. So some of them are scholarship pageants where you're winning money for school. Some of them are preliminary pageants that will lead you to like the next level. So there's local pageants where if you win that, then you have all these sponsorships and prize packages to prepare for the state level. Or if you win the state pageant, then you go to the national pageant. And then they include your entry fee, usually some coaching, a gown or money towards your competition wardrobe. And there's a, honestly a lot of random stuff. There's one pageant I won when I was in college where I won a rock climbing gym membership, which is super random. So it really just depends. They're all different. There's different sponsors and things like that, that contribute to the price packages.
0: Interesting. So when you're, um, so like, what was your when going through the pageants, what was your goal? Did you, after the first time you're like, okay, was there a goal that you were hoping to reach?
1: I mean, you always wanna win, of course, but I think speaking generally, and I think most people who compete in pageants will agree with this, that just winning the crown, winning the title is not like the only thing that's important. It's really like a personal development program, I would say. It's really about like bettering yourself, whether that is your public speaking skills, your interview skills, your resume building skills, uh, getting more involved in the community. For a lot of these pageants, community service is a huge thing that is not only important for the contestants, like as you're competing, you need to have so many hours of community service. But if you win the title, that's a huge part of that. That's kind of like the point is to get out in the community. You're representing different programs. Um, they call it a platform. That's kind of like your cause or your mission for your year that you are holding whatever title. So for one of the pageants, um, their platform is this anti-bullying campaign. It's called BRAVE. It stands for Building respect and Values for Everyone. And so you can, for certain pageants, you can also choose your own platform, whether that's Uh, blood cancer awareness or back the blue supporting law enforcement or any cause or thing that's like near and dear to your heart a lot of charity work volunteer events um, reading to kids in schools speaking in elementary school um, assemblies presentations and things like that
0: wow so um you mentioned the levels um what level did you get to
1: I competed at one national pageant. So most of the time I competed at state pageants in California and in Hawaii where I went to college. And I had won a state pageant in Hawaii that then took me to a national pageant. Oh, and wow. So competed at nationals once. I also competed in some other smaller local pageants that then send you to the state level. But there's a lot of different pageant systems as well. So they all
0: work a little bit differently. So this sounds like a lot it sounds like a lot of stuff. Like I, my sisters were dancers. So, and I just remember how much of a commitment that was like, they were just, my parents were dance parents. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And then when it came to my kids, I was like, (laughs) I'm not going to do that. That's too much. And, and so were you pretty much for a few years, were you just like, that was what you, that you found your community. Like that was it.
1: Yeah. That's what I did really through, um, like my last three years of high school, that's what I did. And when I was in high school, I only competed like once or twice a year. So, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really win. After I graduated high school, I won a local pageant that was uh, Miss West Coast Teen USA. That was my first pageant I finally won. And then that was a preliminary to Miss California Teen USA, but it was right before I was moving to college in Hawaii. So that was a a little complicated, but um, then when I was in college, that's when I won Miss Hawaii Collegiate America. And that was very time consuming. That ate up so much of my time. I honestly don't know how I did it looking back because Mm -hmm. we were required to make four appearances or do four community service things a month. And I was doing more than that. I was doing at least two a week.
0: Wow. So that sounds, I mean, Miss Collegiate you, Hawaii, what, what was it called? Miss Collegiate what?
1: Miss Hawaii Collegiate America.
0: That sounds like, I mean, pretty prestigious. I mean, was that a pretty prestigious one to win?
1: Yeah, that's a big one now. The national one is Miss Collegiate America. They have Miss High School America, Miss Junior High School America. That's a really big one. That was so fun. That national pageant so fun.
0: Nice. Man, so... Now, uh, tell me what, so like preparing for a pageant, Mm -hmm. what do you, what do you do to prepare? Oh, so much, so much. Let me start with this. What, like how much time? So like, I'm, I'm thinking in the, in the course of like an MMA fighter or a boxer goes in and they have like a six week, like, okay, you know, they're training all the time, but then they've got a six week. They really hone in. Is that kind of what it's like?
1: It just depends because you can sign up for these kind of at any point. There's always deadlines that you have to be signed up by. Um, But some people will plan and they'll be like, okay, in like two years, I'm going to compete for Miss California USA or whatever it is. And so I'm going to do all this stuff to prepare. So um, part of it is like active, healthy lifestyle. So um, not all pageants have a swimsuit competition, but some of them do. So uh, you obviously want to be like healthy. It's not like necessarily being the strongest, most ripped person or whatever, but like you want to be healthy and be put together. So that's part of it. Um, practicing interviews and public speaking, things like that we have on-stage questions. so you you pull a question out of a bowl, they ask it to you and you have 30 seconds to come up with an answer that sounds intelligent and put together and don't yeah. end up on YouTube for saying something stupid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So
1: a lot yeah. of that, a lot of mock interview practices, a lot of walking practice. So you have to walk on stage, usually an evening gown, either a swimsuit or like a fun fashion kind of competition. So practicing your walking, um, Yeah. And then all the things to build your resume. So all the volunteer work, all the service and all of those different activities to go on your resume or your bio sheet. So the judges will ask you questions off of that when you're in your interview.
0: Wow. Okay. Now, when you're going through this, um, what do people around you think? I mean, not just family, but like friends, people at the church, what are people thinking of you?
1: (laughs) Most people think it's stupid. Most people think it's really stupid and pointless.
0: Really? Wow. Why? And and what was your response when someone would say something like that?
1: I just don't really care what anybody else thinks. So I used to, I used to care, but I got to the point where I don't care. Um, I think, I think that comes from a lot of misconception and people think that, Oh, pageant girls are just self-centered and conceited and they only care how they look and they want to win a, a shiny crown and they want people to think that they're the best and they're the greatest, but that's really just not true. And so that's why those people's opinions don't matter because it's not correct.
0: Right. You know, let me, let me ask you about that because this, I'm kind of the same way in that um, I stopped caring a long time ago, what people thought about, like, you know, I'm a, i I'm a big pro wrestling guy. I wrestle professionally. I've been all, I've traveled and done that. And, everybody thought that was the dumbest thing ever. You know what I mean? And, but I was like, I don't care. I like it. So mm-hmm. you don't have to like it. That's fine. Yep. But you said, you said something interesting. I can't remember really It was after seventh grade ever really caring what anyone thought about what I did, but you mentioned you, uh, you used to care and now you don't. What, what, what was it that made the change?
1: I think it was actually developing self-confidence.
0: Mm. And did that come through the pageantry? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So even the first couple years I was competing, I was still shy. I was still like, oh, I'm not doing this right. Comparing myself to the other girls, their dress is better or they've been doing this longer. or They have money to pay for these coaches and that kind of stuff. But I don't think it was like, one moment i think it was more of a gradual process where i actually became like self-confident that it, it doesn't matter what people think if you are confident about yourself and you like yourself then who cares if somebody else likes you yeah
0: that's a that's a good point and it's interesting because there are so many people out there who really do like they really care and and that's where you get a lot of people who kind of live one life a certain way but then you know they kind of uh uh, you know the, for the world, but then not the same at home mm-hmm. and uh, and and that I, in my mind that just causes more more problems now, um circling back though back to to church stuff, I mean, one of the things that I think probably a misconception, like you mentioned swimsuit competitions and evening gowns, right? And I'm sure you know, uh some people have a misconception that you're just, being completely immodest and like doing all Mm -hmm. the things did that ever carry through especially when you were in high school did you notice a lot of that
1: um i definitely had comments from people at church i think for the most part people kept their mouth shut but there were people that made comments like oh that's not modest or blah 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 like other girls at church or my young women's leaders sometimes maybe a couple of them i remember distinctly an uncle of mine made several comments about how I'm a horrible example to his children because I wore a strapless dress and I can't be around his kids and he's not going to like my picture on Facebook. Okay. I don't care. Go like somebody else's picture on Facebook. I don't I don't need your validation.
0: I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys, I don't know. I just don't think I'm like you know, if I had a niece that posted a picture of herself in a swimsuit, I don't think I'm liking that anyway. <laughs> yeah, right, right,
1: right, It so, wasn't even a swimsuit. I didn't even compete in swimsuit until until later, but it uh-huh. was a dress. Okay, my shoulders are out. We all have shoulders, all right. right <laughs> it's right, not that. Right. It's not that deep, guys.
0: Yeah, but I mean, so did that ever affect you in any way? I mean, uh, or at this point, were you like, eh, I don't care? really remember
1: i mean maybe it like hurt my feelings in the moment but
0: didn't stop you <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah like yeah. okay
0: uh-huh.
1: probably probably just like fueled the fire a little bit more i'm kind of the person where if you're gonna tell me not to do something i'm, I'm gonna do it so oh.
0: yeah yeah you know and that yeah, it's you're speaking my language here i that's <laughs> i'm the same type you know that goes with that stubbornness hard-headedness is if somebody tells you you can't do something, it just makes you want to do it more. Exactly. You like, you okay, do a little, you, you do have a little bit of rebellion in you. So, <laughs> so now, well, then as a, as a, you know, you're, you're a little bit older now, you know, you're, I'm assuming you're not doing other pageants for your age group now.
1: There are like Misses pageants. Um, I'm not doing that anymore. I competed in one tiny little local one in 2019 a year after i got married um just kind of for fun and i was like 20 years younger than all of the other contestants in that division because everyone's married right. uh, but i'm not competing anymore no
0: okay so i guess uh, as someone who now you know you're a few years out from that and you lived that as a teenager you know, what would you say to say like I have I have uh, two young girls who are 15 and almost 13 and, you know, uh, I mess with them about modesty, but they're good kids. And, you know, they're they're, you know, they're very good kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what is your view if, if you saw, had a young woman come to you and say, hey, listen, what do you think about what I'm hearing at church and modesty and things of that nature? Like what what would be your advice? I think your
1: intention is what matters. Like, if you're trying to wear something super showy, so people are looking at you, or so the boy that you have a crush on notices you, or something like that, and like you're doing it for whatever external validation and like people to notice you, like that's maybe a little sketchy. Like, that's mm-hmm. maybe crossing the line from like the modesty aspect. Um, but I think modesty is really it really has more to do with like your intention and like where your heart's at versus like Mm -hmm. what you're literally wearing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's a tricky, it's tricky situation because everybody's different and their experiences are different with what people have told them so far or different family values are different. But I think just checking like what the intentions are. And I also think like from the adult standpoint, like, other adults that are not your kids' parents should not be making comments about their body or what they're wearing. Like that's inappropriate.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I like what you said there where you said, it's not as much about what you're wearing as much as it is about kind of like how you're carrying yourself or your intention. Mm-hmm. Cause like, I, mean, uh, I see, you know, women, you know, uh, all the time that are wearing various different things. You know, I just went to a conference and in uh, san francisco for attorneys and the women there are wearing all sorts of different evening dresses and gowns and things at a dinner and i think it's different when you know what you're leading with if that makes sense uh mm-hmm. as to whether that you know I think that has more to do with modesty than anything and so i think that's that's very interesting um now as as a young woman, as you were coming up through church, I'm interested in your experience in dealing with the young women's program as you're going through this. Um, and the reason I am is because i've I've spoken with a, a number of people who've gone through who had very different experiences um, with the with the church. H- how did you feel in young women's as you're going through this, you're hearing these comments about, oh, I don't think that's modest or you know things of that nature. Uh, what was your experience like during that time as going through the young women's program?
1: It really wasn't that bad. Honestly, I think in young women's, it it wasn't that bad. Um, I was kind of like, okay, I'm just, I'm just here. I'm just, this is just what we do. We just come to church. We just kind of whatever. I think that kind of thing that you're talking about and alluding to is more of a problem when I was actually in college than when I was mm-hmm. younger.
0: Oh, okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that. What, what happened in college?
1: Yeah. So I went to BYU Hawaii. So for people who are listening who don't know, that's a religious school, very strict rules and strict honor code and that kind of thing. And I was still competing um, in pageants at that point. I had competed at Miss Hawaii USA, very prestigious, very um, like well-known in the pageant world And there are certain things that you're required to wear when you compete. Sometimes if there are sponsored outfits, you have to wear them. And so in that pageant system, there is a swimsuit competition. And per my school's honor code, that was not within those rules or within what you're supposed to be wearing. And so I had all kinds of problems in college Primarily stemming from a set of roommates of mine who honestly don't really know where this even came from, but would just like report me to the honor code, tried to get me kicked out of school, tried to get me kicked out of our house that we lived in. Um, It it was honestly really bad. It was really bad.
0: Wow. And this is all stemming from just something you wore at a pageant?
1: I mean, that was part of it. I think there was probably other stuff as well, Mm -hmm. but... That was definitely like some of the stuff that they used against me where i'd get called into the honor code office and they're like well there's a picture of you on the internet wearing this bikini i'm like okay yeah sorry wait,
0: wait so is there a, is the i'm not i never went to a byu school so and I, but i've heard of the honor code is there a rule against bikinis uh, in the honor code
1: i think so probably
0: hmm. wow
1: I don't remember the exact verbiage or how it's worded, but even
0: if you're not on campus. Yeah. So the honor code
1: technically still applies to you, even if you're not on campus. Wow. So, I mean, technically I was breaking the rules and I, I can't deny that because that's a fact, but,
0: but you're doing it as part of, yeah, you're doing this as part of this pageant. Right.
1: And everybody else at that school is wearing bikinis down on the beach, just around the corner from the school. So I'm not doing anything different than anyone else.
0: Did you get the sense that these uh, these roommates probably had some other issue with you and was using this as a way to kind of get back at you, being a little catty?
1: Definitely, but I think that is uh, taking it a little too far. Um, Like if you have a problem with me, you can just tell me. You don't have to go and get me kicked out of school.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow. How many roommates did you have in
1: this? (laughs) Too many. Too many. Yeah. So that house. That I'm referring to, there were 10 of us.
0: Oh man. Yeah. Which I, is
1: another, that's not a good idea. Anyone who's listening, who's going to college, don't live with that many people. That's my
0: I can't, number one piece of advice. I can't imagine living. So I went on a mission and I lived in a foursome a couple of times. And like the, even with four, the amount of like drama that you would ensue living with that many people, 10 for sure, mm-hmm. like you're gonna, you're bound to have problems with one or two of them. Oh yeah, you know, oh, especially yeah. especially if you're a little outspoken and have a little bit of attitude, <laughs> you know, like that's not <laughs> you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna make uh, you're not gonna make friends with everybody, man. So okay, so um, uh, in in the course of this, where um, let's talk a little bit about your testimony and you know, when it comes to this, did that come along in high school later or did you always know?
1: Yeah, I think probably later, I would say, like growing up, I would mostly go to church with my grandparents. Um, My mom's not the most timely person. So uh, if we wanted to be be on time... (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to be on time. We'd go with my grandparents and they were, my grandma's pretty strict. She's, she's very much a rule follower. She didn't like the swimsuits and the strapless dresses either, but um, she was very good. My grandparents were very good about encouraging us to go to church and taking us to our activities and things like that. Um, And I was friends with the girls in my ward. Um, And so I, I think at that age, that's kind of what you go for. Like when you're a teenager, you go because those are your friends or you go because you're supposed to, or your family's telling you you're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And then in college, of course, you're like free to make your own choices. You can do whatever you want. But um, also kind of got to the point where I was like kind of forced to go after this whole fiasco of my um, roommates trying to get me kicked out of school. I had my ecclesiastical endorsement taken away. The mm. bishop basically told me I was a horrible person and I was making really bad decisions, and that wow. I. It was really bad. I was like, what is going on? This is crazy. Um, he. So he pulled my endorsement, which if you don't have your ecclesiastical endorsement, you're kicked out of the school. And it was a little bit different than how other people would like get kicked out of school. If the honor code tries to kick you out, the Bishop can like keep you in. But if the Bishop tries to kick you out, the honor code can't do anything about it. Um, And I told the Bishop that if he kicked me out of school, I wasn't stepping foot in a church building ever again.
0: Wow. Wow. So wait. Okay. So just so I understand, (laughs) because here's the thing, right? Like, and, and this is what I don't get about this stuff. Is that like, if you could, you can wear a bikini, take a picture, post it on Instagram and still have a, t- a temple recommend, like lots of people do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, yeah. what is the, what, what was the malfunction here? You know what I mean? Like what, what was, yeah. the, are, are, what I don't understand what their, tell me what <laughs> your view of this was, like what the issue was.
1: It was honestly a mess so like that was part of it there was also some other false accusations um regarding this like boyfriend i had at the time Mm -hmm. and these roommates were saying i was doing things that i wasn't doing Mm -hmm. um and so like that was part of it as well so and then they just started adding to the story of course trying to um
0: trying to get kicked out like
1: it right trying to build this case against me essentially i'm like yes, I, I wore, I wore a bikini, but like, that's about all that's true of this story. Right. So um, yeah, that that's a whole story. We could, we could get into the weeds of that. But um, wow. essentially, the bishop was like, you're making bad decisions. You're a liar. You're doing horrible things. And you're taking up somebody else's spot at this school. And I was crushed, like, crushed. This was Uh, I only had, I think, two more semesters to go until I was graduating, maybe three. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? Like, you, you, you kick me out of school. Like, I have to be here. Um, so it was this whole story. I ended up appealing it to the stake president. The stake president actually believed me, um, that I wasn't doing all of these things that I was being accused of doing, um, And so i was able to stay but i was on a tight leash after that where i was required to be at church every single sunday Um, if i was going to miss church for like a community service event that i had or something i would have to tell the bishop in advance i would have to make arrangements to go to a different ward um, at a different time introduce myself to that bishop say my bishop's going to be checking in with you to to confirm that i was here um yeah i had a bunch of extra rules and stipulations on that um kind of like being on probation essentially
0: wow man like
1: yeah i was i was a good kid i was not the kid that's like into drugs and drinking and partying and
0: i well you know what's funny about that (laughs) this is just anecdotal right but it's like it's so funny how that kind of works. My, my experience as a high school kid, I was pretty rambunctious. Like I was the one who was interrupting firesides and youth conferences. You know, I was goofing around. I'm sure Debbie's got stories, (laughs) Uh, but like, I was never doing anything, at least that they were aware of that was that bad. Right. Mm -hmm. There were other kids who were doing way worse. You know what I mean? Who Mm -hmm. like they had this view, it seemed like sometimes, and I, and no, look, it, this is not bad, obviously not bashing the church, it's just people are imperfect, right? But like, those people who were way off the rails, they were like, well, we're just grateful they're here, right? But then like, mm-hmm. you're like the middle of the road, just kind of goofing around, doing things that maybe are a little controversial, and they're like, huh, you're just a bad influence, you know? And it's just like, wait a minute. I'm the one who's these people over here who are doing drugs and drinking and doing all these things. I'm the one telling them they need to come to church with me yet. I'm the one that's the one that you might want, not want to have at a youth conference. You know what I mean? Like, but here's the other thing I find really interesting. And I know I got a few years on you. So of the group, we had a group, a large group of, uh, seminary like a seminary group right we had a large group the funny thing that i find is that of the boys at least the ones who are a little rough around the edges and a little controversial they're active but the ones who were like way out there and and way over here most of them are not Mm -hmm. really, really interesting to see like uh and i don't know if that's just a generational thing with my generation particularly of kids who grew up in the 90s but that's what I'm seeing. Are, your generation, are you seeing anything like that with friends? Are you aware you kept up with them?
1: Yeah, I think that probably holds true also.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that, I, I think that there's a, I've had this, I actually just had this conversation with a friend of mine just a couple of days ago, um, you know, about uh, just about our views, of uh of church and church policy and then also kind of the way church history should be um presented and i have a very much more hey we should present it all view whereas he's like well we should just keep the faithful stuff view he's very rigid and it's interesting because i find the people who are so rigid like that when something happens that doesn't fit in their box they really struggle
1: mm-hmm. yep
0: and so that's interesting but so uh, where you have this struggle in church or in college and you actually say to your bishop, if you kick me out, I'm never setting foot in the church again. What mm-hmm. kept you in?
1: Well, one, I
0: was required to come to church. So they wouldn't. Which is, is a good, good one. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah. So but, but why still, why are you still going with this experience?
1: Honestly, I, I, I don't know. I don't really have an answer to that. I think, after this whole experience, I like I was like, okay, if you're gonna be mad at me for something I didn't do, like maybe I'm gonna go make some more like kind of questionable decisions. Didn't do anything really bad, but I was like a little more on the edge uh-huh. um, through the rest of college, probably I would say. Mm-hmm. And then when I graduated college, so I graduated with my bachelor's degree when I was 20, I moved back home.
0: Wait, cause... that that's quick. Mm-hmm. That should...
1: Two and a half years.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. So you were just like, I mean, you were just pounding the books.
1: Yeah. So my school, when I was there, they changed our academic calendar. So the first year I was there, it was normal, like fall and spring semesters with a summer term in the middle, kind of normal schedule. And then after that they went to these trimesters or three full semesters. Oh, where, yeah, yeah, you can, yeah, yeah. Kind okay. of like BYU-Idaho does, but instead of yeah. being assigned to go to two of them, you can go to all of them. And so, and I had come in with some credits from AP classes in high school and I really just buckled down and knocked it out. I was taking like 17 to 19 credits a semester while also working three jobs and doing pageants and making all these appearances. Wow. And it was honestly nuts, yeah. but I graduated in two and a half years with my bachelor's degree. So I was only 20.
0: Dang. That's, man, that's, that's nuts. Mm-hmm. What, what, what was the drive? Like, what was the drive behind that? Why, why do so much? Is that just, a, is it just that who you are or is there was some I kind,
1: of, kind of not really any rhyme or reason to that? I think part of it too, was after I had that whole experience um, that we kind of just talked about, I was like, I just got to get out of here. Hmm. Um, like, let's just, let's just knock this out. Also the school I went to was so, so small It was about the same size as my high school. There were less than 3,000 students when I was there. I think it's grown by now, but it was very, very small. And so any of your upper level classes for your major were only offered once a year. And so you had to get it then or you had to wait a whole year to take it. So there were certain semesters where I was like, I have to take these three upper level science classes, very rigorous, very intense. Like now's my only chance unless I want to be here another year. So that was part of it as well as I was kind of just forced into that to get my things required to graduate.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. My daughter has suggested that she uh, wants, she she's considered BYU Hawaii. She's 15 and mm-hmm. she's the palest kid you'll ever see. So <laughs> lots of sunscreen if she's <laughs> out there. What advice would you have to for kids giving your experience, which it sounds like some good some bad. Um, what would you? What advice would you give to somebody who's interested in going to specifically BYU Hawaii?
1: Overall, I will say I had a really positive experience. Aside from kind of this one bump in the road, overall, absolutely loved it. Loved my time there. The piece of advice I would say is you really have to develop self control motivation and time management skills because there's so much fun stuff to do hmm. you're going to be out at the beach surfing hiking adventuring all day long and you're going to fail your classes if you don't develop that self-discipline and motivation
0: yeah curious where did you work because I everywhere I went it seemed uh, everywhere I went when I visited there were BYU Hawaii kids working like They're at the the Polynesian Cultural Center, up at Kaloa Ranch. There were a bunch Mm -hmm. of people at BYU. And uh, so where did you work?
1: My primary job that I worked the whole time that I was in school was in the athletics department. And it was so fun. I had the best job ever. I was a sports information assistant. And so I went to all of the sports games, which now they've gotten rid of their athletics department, which is honestly a tragedy. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I would write articles and recaps of all the games. So we go to the basketball games, softball, tennis, whatever, all the different things, and I would just write recap articles of the games. It was so fun, and I. Oh, you
0: were like you were a sports writer then. That's yes, that's yes. Awesome. Wow. So that was so, super. Fun. So now uh, you graduate. What's your bachelor's in?
1: Uh, biology with an emphasis in biomedical sciences and a minor in biochemistry.
0: Did you have something specific you wanted to do with that?
1: So I actually went to BYU-Hawaii because I am obsessed with sharks. You don't hear this very often. But I wanted to be a marine biologist and work in shark conservation. So Mm. that's the reason that I went there initially. And then in my second semester, in my marine vertebrates class... I was like, I don't care about the rest of this stuff. This is all super boring. I don't care about narwhals. My daughter loves narwhals. My three-year-old, right. but <laughs> I don't care about all this other stuff. This is super boring. And I learned that I get very, very seasick, and so that would be a miserable job I couldn't do.
0: that. Sure. man. Okay, and so, um, but you carry on with biology as you're as you're getting out of it. Did you Mm -hmm. have plans to, because you, you know, we're going to talk about grad school. Did Mm -hmm. you have an idea of what you wanted to do or were you still considering?
1: Yes. I switched from marine biology to biomedical sciences because I decided that I wanted to go to med school and be a clinical geneticist. Interesting. That didn't end up happening, but we can get to that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, you get done at 20. Do you come back to Citrus Heights? Is that... Okay. Yes. So. Go ahead.
1: My plan was to just be here for a couple of months. I was going to take the MCAT and start applying to medical schools. You have to apply a year in advance. And then I was going to move to Texas because the medical school that I wanted to go to was in Texas. And I wanted to establish in-state residency to be able to pay the in-state tuition.
0: Mm -hmm. And then that didn't happen.
1: Then I met my husband.
0: That changes everything. Yes, the guy messes up all the plans. So no, you, it's, it's
1: better. It worked out better.
0: So you meet him? Is it, where'd you meet him? YSA? You meet yes, him?
1: unfortunately.
0: <laughs> Young single adults gets you every time.
1: Yes, it was so bad. There were like ten people in that ward on a good day. It was it was a mess. It's like the the creepy people pushing thirty who still live in their mom's house that you like. <laughs> Please don't come anywhere near me. And then one day this new guy walks in, I'm like, hmm, where'd you come from? <laughs> and here we are.
0: Wait, was he, uh, did he grow up here or was he like a, one of those bug boys that came in?
1: <laughs> mm, neither. He grew up in the Central Valley in Tulare Visalia area, about three hours away.
0: Yeah. And
1: then he had lived in Utah for about 10 years. And then he moved here for work, which okay. you'll you'll have that whole conversation with yeah. him
0: yeah i will we'll have him on eventually talking about that so now um uh, at this point now you're coming back here you're going to young single adults small ward it's interesting you know it it's interesting what the church did with the ysa because when i came back from my mission and i went into the ysa it was uh there were only two wards in the whole area so they were big mm-hmm. and then they decided they decided and i no understand why they decided that every stake should have their own young single adult because there were so many young single adults that were less active. They thought they'd be able to better, mm-hmm. you know. But it resulted in a lot of really, really small wards for a while. I think mm-hmm. they've kind of gotten away from that now. I think they're kind they of they
1: combined them back together. Yeah,
0: yeah. So like, there's there's one for every few stakes, mm-hmm. which I think is a little bit better. But I know for a while it was real slim. And so, so you you meet now in this time frame though. Again, like. Uh, your testimony—how is it growing? Is this—I've I've seen there's there's two types of people. There's the type of people who just kinda always believed and just all, can't remember a time when they didn't. And then there's some people where they've had like there was a moment or a few moments that really solidified their testimony. Which do you think that there's a camp you fall in?
1: More so the first one, I would say. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Even though I had that period in college where I was like, screw you, you guys tried to ruin my life. I hate everybody. I'm only here because I'm forced to. I think eventually that was good for me. I think I started to have some positive experiences at church through the rest of my time in college once I stopped being a brat about it. Um, And then once I came back here, I was kind of like, this is what I need to do. Like. Mm -hmm. I think I just need to, like, I think I just don't know what else to do. And that was just, like, I I knew that I should do that, I guess.
0: Well, so it, the, here's the reason why I bring this up and why I'm kind of hammering on this point, because I think this is really interesting. Because an experience like you had in college, at least from the people that I've talked to, like, I tend to be a little bit of a lightning rod for people who are going through, with, they call them faith journeys now. They used to call them faith crisis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then also, people who are just having general struggles in their lives or marriages or whatever. And one common theme that I see is that uh, a bad experience with a bishop like you had could be a catalyst for starting people kind of down a path of leaving. Not mm-hmm. saying that is the reason, not saying that that's the only reason, but if they maybe were struggling beforehand, something like that happens, it kind of pushes them further down or it mm-hmm. makes them questioning. Yep. And so, uh, what is it about you that you think or your experience that made you not go that route other than, of course you were forced for a while, but I mean, like, you know, it, I know some people who, it, you know, with a, with a hard head, stubborn type would, okay, I'm going to do this as long as I have to. And then as soon as I don't have to, I'm out. Like what, why did you keep going? You think?
1: I really don't have, an answer to that, like I wish I could pinpoint that a little bit better. Um, I think I think I knew that it was true, and I knew that it it was the right thing to do, and that um, like there were enough like good experiences, and then I think I also had the ability to separate that one person who said those things to me from the actual Gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's so important. Like right. I I can't emphasize enough when I when I talk to these people that have these issues of why that is so important cuz if you only have to take a quick look through the Old Testament to realize that like people who are put in those positions are not perfect. Prophets, mm-hmm. apostles, all the way down to your local bishop. Mm-hmm. And just because one person handles a situation poorly does not mean the whole gospel is untrue. Mm -hmm. Um, that's that's such an important point to be able to differentiate that
1: right Uh and i think i think the stake president i had at that time was really helpful as well in that he was much more supportive and much more reasonable i thought Um, and so i think that was really helpful because i would have regular meetings with him as well and so i think that was an important aspect of of
0: the whole journey and process as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think also you, you mentioned the force part. I thought that that's really interesting in, in part of your story. You said, well, I was kind of forced to go and I kind of was able to calm down a little bit, you know, and, and start seeing these things because I remember I had an experience with the Bishop where same thing, right? Like where it was like, it was like really not favorable. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, I'm just going to do this as long as I have to do it. And then Uh, And then I'm gone, right? I'm gonna do, and uh, I'm really glad that I did, because over the course of time, as like I kept working with that bishop, I came to realize maybe I didn't agree with the decisions he made, but he was doing the things that he thought were were important. And the increase of love I saw Mm -hmm. later—if I would have just bounced when I got Mm offended—I would have missed all of that. The, yeah. the bishop ended up becoming a huge blessing in my life, and I would have missed that. You know what I mean? If I would have just, mm-hmm. well, this is all ridiculous, and I'm out of here. You know, so, yeah. so now you 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 meet your husband. How long? I mean, are you the classic Mormon family? <laughs> are you like three months you're engaged, six <laughs> months later you're married, you're pregnant a year later?
1: Pretty much, <laughs> not too far off. And that was not my plan. So I was very much like, nope, I'm gonna be a doctor, I'm going to med school, I'm not getting married until I'm 35. And like everybody stay away from me. I was not looking for a husband. Like I know there's a lot of a lot of girls when they LBS girls when they're in college or when they finish college, they're like, Okay, now I need to find a husband. Like let's let's do this thing. That was not me. I was not trying to do that, but the mm-hmm. Heavenly Father knew what I needed, I guess. Yeah.
0: Now tell me what is it that uh so so let's talk about your husband a little bit. I know him, mm-hmm. I know him a little bit. So uh at the time you know he just recently wrapped up as a sheriff deputy. He after about 8 years, right? Mm-hmm. So at the time was he all he moved here for work at, to be a sheriff deputy? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So he was already doing that. He was already working um for Plaster County and that was all I knew him as. I didn't know him before that.
0: Interesting. Okay. And so what was it about him that made you flip the script completely?
1: Oh man. I don't know. That's <laughs> a hard question. You're like,
0: I don't even know sometimes.
1: <laughs> no, he's the best. He's great. He, um, he's very supportive. He actually, he tried to break up with me actually, because he was like, I don't want to ruin your plans. I know you want to be this doctor and do all these things. He's like, I don't want to hold you back. Like I have to let you go and live your life. And I was like, no, I'm not going anywhere. You can't get rid of me that easy.
0: Oh, wow, man. So, um, so now you're married in the Sacramento temple. Yes. Okay. And then um, now you, so how long from meeting to marriage?
1: Um, A little over a year, but when we first met each other, we were both kind of in and out. I was still competing. I was competing in Miss California, USA, so I was busy um, out of town kind of a lot, going to Southern California for things, Um, and he was kind of working some Sundays or out of town with his family in the summer. So it was kind of on and off. We didn't see each other a whole lot at the beginning. Um, From the time we started actually dating until we got married would have been
0: probably like nine months. Yeah, That's typical. Uh, typical. Well, and the reason I bring that up is because that's really, I think that's important to the story because so you get married, you know um, obviously, you know, you you got married in the temple, so you didn't cohabitate beforehand mm -hmm. Thrown in now. And you've known this guy for a year, really, really known him for nine months. And then you're thrown into being a sheriff deputy's wife. Right. So tell me, uh, was that a bit of a culture shock for you? Um,
1: I I I just didn't know any different. I guess like I didn't know anything about law enforcement before, um, so there's definitely some learning curve in terms of like well, what's all this terminology or what are these things that you're doing and like that kind of stuff. But it just kind of was what it was. I don't I don't know
0: mm-hmm so as you're um uh as you you know you start living together, was there a little bit of a uh, adjustment i mean because you you strike me as someone who you know strong willed little independent enjoys probably you know has a plan for herself and then here and now you've gotta you've gotta take into consideration somebody else and then he's <laughs> he is a, a sheriff's deputy right and I'm sure he probably has, you got to have a little bit of a bullhead to be able to do that. So a little bit of adjustment period or was it just like, you guys are great.
1: I think everybody, everybody has an adjustment period, no matter what your background is or what your career is. When you get married or you start living together with somebody, there's going to be an adjustment period, no matter what. Um, I don't think there was anything like super abnormal. Um, Mm -hmm. The schedule though, the shift work that, that can be super brutal that can be really really hard to adjust to
0: and what do you mean by what give me an idea what a shift work means
1: yeah so when we were dating the whole time we were dating and engaged he was on night shift and so he was working from 7 p.m to 7 a.m and then i was working normal person hours like eight to five kind of thing and so we wouldn't really see each other for about four days at a time um we would talk on the phone while i was driving to work and he was driving home And then when I was driving home and he was driving to work, thankfully, about a week before we got married, he actually got assigned to kind of the specialty position within the um, jail system and justice system where he was actually on a day shift schedule. So for the first year that we were married, he was actually on day shift, which was great. And then after that, really pretty much the rest of his career, he was on swing shift, which is 3 p.m. to 1 a.m.
0: Hmm. Man, that's rough mm-hmm. So for that year. Was he, uh, was he working at the court or something?
1: He was doing transport in the jails. So oh, okay. t- taking inmates to appointments or between, mm-hmm. um, between different places.
0: Mm. So did he hate that? Like, was he the type of guy who like, <laughs> he really liked being out on the streets. I've, I've known oh, yeah. some cops and they're like, I don't want a desk job. I want to be like out there. Is that kind of the way he was?
1: Yeah. So in, in his department, they were required to do two years in the jail and nobody likes that. That's the worst. Uh-huh. So, um, for one of his for one of his years, he was doing that transport and it was good in that he had a more normal schedule and he wasn't on nights anymore, but so boring. Nobody wants to do that.
0: Right, right, man. So is it 12 hours, four days? Is that uh, how they work or are they doing five days and that counts as OT?
1: So in the jail, they do 12 hour shifts and they would do, um, three days, one week and four days the next week. So they'd kind of alternate. So that was nice on the weeks when you had four days off, but then on patrol, they do four tens.
0: Mm, Okay. All right. So, um, talk to me about what it's like being a sheriff deputy's wife. I mean, the concerns, I mean, obviously you're probably worried every time he's out there, right?
1: I think I'm probably different
0: than most of them in that I'm like, ah, oh, like,
1: You're, you'll you be fine. Like, Ugh. obviously, I want you to be safe. I'm not like heartless. But I'm like, I, I trust your judgment. I trust your training that you have. Um, like, I, I trust you to have good judgment and like, make a good call and like, keep yourself safe. Like, I'm not out here freaking out. If I don't hear from you for 10 minutes, like, you're busy. You're fine. You're, you're just doing what you need to do. It'll it'll be okay.
0: Sure. Does he ever come home with like injuries and stuff and you're like, Oh crap, how did that happen?
1: Not too many, maybe a couple like cuts or bruises or things like that. But he was, he was pretty lucky in that he did not have any like major injuries or, um, really like severe incidents where I know some people aren't that lucky. Um, just some fights and things like that. So,
0: Nothing too serious, yeah, now, um you know, I, I know we we spoke you know the three of us, you me and him, we were kind of talking uh, earlier, and he was sharing some of his experience about what sounded to be a little bit like some PTSD symptoms and stress from the job that kind of manifested over the course of time and how he felt like he was changing, mm-hmm. and what was your experience with that? uh understanding how long ago did he leave was it was just recently right
1: about a month ago was Oh, wow! So
0: really recently
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah was this a long time coming had you guys been having conversations about this for a while or was he just all of a sudden i don't want to do this anymore
1: it, we had been talking about it for a long time it was kind of like i gotta get out of this like this is uh this is not good and sustainable long term like it's, it's really not it's really not healthy it's not a healthy environment to be in um whether that's like the people on the streets or the people within like your coworkers just really not a good environment all around. Um, mm-hmm. so would had been a long conversation of like, where do we go from here? What am I going to do next? And that kind of thing. So, um, really, really hard decision to make really emotional decision. Um, because that's a big part of his identity. And also, a big part of his family, his, his dad and his brother are also or were also in law enforcement.
0: Wow. So uh, from the perspective of a wife watching her husband go through this, what are some of the changes over time that you started seeing? Um,
1: he... I think there was just a, an accumulation of a lot of bad things that have happened. Um, and.
0: Let's every- start before, before you go on oh, yeah. you Say bad things that have happened. Do you mean like bad experiences at work or, or bad things that have happened in life? What do you mean by that?
1: Oh, at, at work. Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah. calls he's gone to like really traumatic, um, really scary horrible Horrible horrific things that people can't even begin to imagine and I only know like Barely surface level things that he's told me and there's there's much more um, Like just really traumatic bad things that happen in the world that 99.9% of people are oblivious to um, And so that just really accumulates and like weighs on people after a while so um, I think just some personality changes in terms of being, um, a little bit more checked out. They call it the magic chair. There's this book, this like emotional survival for law enforcement or something like that. I can't remember the name of the book, but this, this guy calls it the magic chair. So they get home and they've been running way up here on all this adrenaline. They're literally fighting for their life, trying to survive. And then they get home and that's not sustainable. You can't you can't function at that level constantly and it's just a crash and it's just checking out and it's just like cannot engage or function or anything. And this is not to speak poorly of my husband at all. Um, this is just, this is a problem across law enforcement or their similar careers, um, where like you you just can't sustain that level of functioning. Um, so that's part of it. And then, yeah, I would say that's kind of the main thing. And then, of course, other little nuances and things off of there. Um, but in terms of changes, it's really hard just to see how, um, like, worn down he was from how hard he had worked for so long. Um not necessarily because he wanted to and wanted to be gone and working that much, but because like of necessity um mm-hmm. for a family, really,
0: yeah, because he was saying there were some things that came up where you know uh you know, paying off school debts and mm-hmm. other things that he had to work a lot like sixteen hours sixteen hours a day for mm-hmm. days a week for a while yeah. and that, yeah. and being out there, you know, and you know you know I, I don't think anyone would suggest that you talking about the reality of this is is talking bad about your husband. I can't imagine being out there dealing with like just the the hardest people to deal with in the world, like the the mm-hmm. worst of the worst all day. You're getting called for all of these different things. I mean, imagine that you're you're going to work and every day could be the day that somebody stabs you, shoots mm-hmm. you. You're running into these people literally all the time. Sheriffs are different than CHP. Mm-hmm. They're not just pulling people over for traffic mm-hmm. stops. Right. Yep. And, and then you have to come home. And then, you know, if you're coming home on a swing shift, you go to bed at 1 a.m. and you got to get up and be super dad after yep. all of that terrible thing you've seen. That, yep. that, that's that that got to be tough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's it's really not healthy. It's not good.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, and how would that manifest? With, like, would that... How would that manifest with you and your kids? Like, was he short? Would it, would it cause him, like, if he got right off a of shift and you're like, hey, I need you to help me with this sick kid. It was like, you know, a little bit of a blow up or how, how would that how would that manifest?
1: Uh, Yeah, usually. He like wouldn't really blow up that much, but would more so just be like, I can't deal with this. Like, I I just can't even function right now. I'm like, I have been with this screaming kid all day. Like, you take her. Um, And there's only so much patience that a person can have. And when that's already been spent at work dealing with these horrible, terrible people um, or your coworkers that are kind of crappy sometimes, um, then there's not much of that left for, for your family. Um, and so that was a big part of it. And that's not necessarily something that he always had control over, which, I mean, everyone's responsible for themselves and their own actions, but like given, given a situation, um, definitely not a whole lot of patience or a whole lot of space for, um, toddler emotions or little kids right. feelings or, or things like that. They just come along with having babies and and little kids.
0: And that you know, that's gotta be hard for you too, because I, I gotta imagine unless it's gotta be hard for him and you because you he could tell you what it's like, but you really couldn't even imagine unless you were there. You yeah. know, like I, I've talked about this before. Do you remember the Ray Rice incident? The football mm-hmm. player hit his girlfriend in a Las Vegas. Not really, no. Okay, so so I'll just, I'll just share it with you. I've shared about it on here before. So there was this report of this guy who's with the Baltimore Ravens, Ray Rice, and there was a report that he had knocked out his girlfriend in an elevator, like he punched her and knocked her out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the NFL, the NFL later, you know, they suspended him for like four games. And they're like, "What do you mean you only suspended him for four games?" Blah 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 blah. And they're like, "Well, you know, he's going to go through all these classes, yada yada yada." And then the video from the elevator got leaked. And you saw him punch her in the face. And then the NFL suspended him for life. Mm. And they're like, Oh, well, wait a minute. What happened? What's the difference? And they said, It's it's one thing to hear about it, it's another thing to see it. Mm-hmm. And and so you have to, I gotta imagine for him, it's hard for him to even articulate what he's dealing with, yeah. and hard for you to even imagine. And so he's coming home and he's emotionally spent, and he doesn't mm-hmm. know what you've been through all day with mm-hmm. two screaming toddlers. You know what I mean, and you don't understand what he's been through, and that yep. probably causes a little bit of strife.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I need you to pay attention to me. Hello, and right. he's like, and like, I just need
0: a minute. Right, right. You you keep bringing up also like uh, difficult coworkers or coworkers who aren't doing the things. Like, w- can you give me an idea of what you're talking about there?
1: Um. I don't want to say too much that I'm not allowed to say. So I think I'll defer that question to him when you, you have him on and you talk to him.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's fair. So, um, so all of this is going on over the course of time. You see these personality changes. He's been done for a month. What is he doing now? He is doing sales. Oh, okay. All right. What changes have you seen? And I mean, it's only been a month, right? But have you seen a drastic difference?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yes. Uh, Definitely much more space, like mental space, because he's not seeing these traumatic things all day, every day anymore. He's just bopping around, talking to people, normal people, normal conversations. And of course there's still hard days and and pros and cons to everything, but um, much more patience, much more space for for the kids, for myself. Um, And then the flexibility as well. One thing that was really, really hard when he was in law enforcement was the hours. Uh, We Mm -hmm. talked about the shift work, those schedules that that's just kind of crappy all around. Like don't see each other really for weeks at a time, especially once I started working full time, I would be gone at 7 a.m. He's still asleep. I come home at six. He's gone at work. Like we wouldn't see each other for the full week until we would have days off. Um, Mm -hmm. And even then it's only like he'd have days off in the middle of the week. So we only see each other for a little bit in the evening. That kind of thing was really hard. So now he has much more flexibility in his schedule. There's no more mandatory OT or call out, dive call out. Somebody stupid is getting in the river and they drown. And now you have to go leave your family event um, to go pull them out of the river because they made a stupid choice. So that just is really exhausting. So since he's been done, since he's been out, just the flexibility and being able to be present and be home has been
0: huge. Hmm, man. I got to imagine. I mean, it's so crazy to think that in just a month's time, you see that drastic of a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really goes to show because you, you, you know, you hear all this stuff in the media and police have obviously in the last, I'd say the last decade gotten a real bad rap, you know, because of, of all the stuff you see in the media. And I don't think people understand what police officers go through on a day-to-day basis. And you have one cop who made one bad mistake, you know. Uh, and then next thing you know, all cops are bad. Defund the police, you mm-hmm. know. And that's rough, man.
1: It's a mess. It is horrendous. It's so bad. Like, public's view of them all especially in California different laws and things like that and weird rules that they have and weird things they have to do that's just unnecessary and pointless and taking up their time it's really just stupid it's all
0: mess yeah man now let's let's shift gears a little bit because you mentioned you started working so you now also in the midst in all your free time with two toddlers, got a, got a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And what is your graduate degree in?
1: So I have a master's degree in genetic counseling.
0: Genetic Counseling. And what is genetic counseling? Yeah, it's a great question. So the
1: short answer is that I explain complicated things to people in a way that they can understand so they can make informed decisions about their health. There's a lot more nuances than that, but that's kind of the elevator pitch.
0: Okay. So genetic counseling, like, are you talking about people who maybe they have some sort of genetic condition and you help mm-hmm. them manage it?
1: Um, Kind of. So not so much the like medical care side of things, but more so understanding the information surrounding it. So mm-hmm. there's different specialties of genetic counseling. I work in prenatal, but primarily mm-hmm. what I'm doing is I'm talking with pregnant women who have done some sort of blood screening test that comes back high risk. Or they've had an ultrasound and there's abnormal findings on the ultrasound. Something's wrong with their baby or something's unexpected. Or they have a family history of a particular genetic condition in somebody else in the family and they want to know the chance that their baby has this condition. That's kind of um, the more common things. Or there's also people that just come for general conversation about screening options. Um, And so I basically... Kind of a rough outline of one of my genetic counseling sessions. Usually in about an hour, I take their medical history, their pregnancy history, I take a family history. So um, in prenatal, both the mom's side, so my actual patient, and then the father of the baby, their side of the family, looking for red flags of things that could be related to a genetic condition or something that could be passed on through the generations to the baby. Um, If there's anything that comes up in the family that's suspicious, then we have whatever conversation tailored to that, Um, but then really the remainder of the conversation is focusing on whatever the reason is that they were referred to me. So say it is an abnormal ultrasound finding or a high-risk blood test result um, that says their baby has a high chance of having Down syndrome, for example. Um, give them a whole background spiel on, what do I mean by genetics? What is this? What are you talking about? What, what's chromosomes? What's DNA? What are genes? All of that. Um, we talk about different types of inheritance. Um, if there's a particular condition like Down syndrome, trisomy 18, trisomy 13, something that we're suspicious of, uh, we'll talk specifically about what that condition is. What are the features of that? What's the prognosis? for other types of conditions. Um, What are are the treatment options? What are the different types of medical specialists that will be involved in your baby's care throughout their life? Um, So talking specifically about that, we talk a lot about different types of genetic testing options. So in pregnancy, we have two different categories of genetic testing. We have screening tests. Those are non-invasive, typically a blood draw or ultrasound counts as a screening tool. And those are non-invasive things that can tell us the probability. So is there a high chance or is there a low chance that your baby has something specific Mm. versus diagnostic testing that's done through invasive procedures, but that can either confirm um, that there is that condition there or that there's not, that the baby doesn't have that. And so talking about all the different options for screening tests and diagnostic tests, risks, benefits, and limitations of all of those different tests. Um, If a patient elects to do whatever test, screening test or diagnostic testing, we facilitate that. Once those results come back in, then I explain the results to the patient um, and what the implications of that are, or just really, it, it depends on what the exact result is or what the exact scenario is, but what's the recurrence risk that this would happen again in future pregnancies? What are the implications for other family members and their risks for having a baby with this condition? Things like that. Um, if their baby is diagnosed with a specific condition, I give them resources about that and, um, refer them to, um, certain things like if they need a fetal echocardiogram, which is a detailed ultrasound, just of the baby's heart, then I can place those referrals and things like that to coordinate some more of their care.
0: It really, is fascinating how much medical stuff we have to figure all this stuff out. It's like 50 years ago. Like, they're just like, I don't know, the baby came out, Down syndrome, there it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, and now we have all these ways to test it. It's just so great. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. so um, are you the one, if, if <laughs> maybe you could talk about if you've had this experience where you find out mm-hmm. someone has some sort of genetic issue with their pregnancy and they're talking to you about options of keeping the baby or not. hmm uh, when that happens, do you find yourself in a kind of a strange position or do you send them off to somebody else to do that?
1: So that's a conversation that I definitely have to have with people. Um, particularly if it's a diagnosis that is not compatible with life, something mm. like their baby skull didn't develop or their baby doesn't have a brain or, um, there's a combination of multiple anomalies or multiple abnormal findings on the ultrasound that are not compatible with life. That's definitely a conversation that I have to have.
0: That's more... Compatible with life? Do you mean like if they, when they're born they're not going to live very long? They're mm-hmm. going to live a couple of days at most, type thing,
1: or at all? Yeah. Oh, okay. Or okay. they're yeah. Um, so just depending on what the condition is, we talk about the prognosis. So um, like, what's the chance that your baby's even going to make it to a live birth? Um, and then if they are life-born, then whatever percentage live to a month, whatever percentage live to six months, whatever percentage live to a year, that kind of conversation. Um, and so when talking about the decision to stop a pregnancy that's affected with one of these conditions, it's really a heart-wrenching conversation for these patients. Um, it's very, very different than thinking about somebody having an abortion because they just don't want to be pregnant. It's completely different topics these are very desired and wanted pregnancies these are people who are mourning the loss of their baby and it's not a decision that people take lightly
0: yeah wow talk about do you feel do these types of conversations do you feel them as a burden or a blessing to be able to have them
1: i think i'm glad that i'm the one that gets to have these conversations with people uh particularly particularly because of my training in delivering this type of news and sharing this type of information with people versus them just reading it online or hearing horror stories from other people. But it can be very, very draining. There's definitely cases where I finish an appointment with a patient and I'm like, that just drained me. That was exhausting emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can definitely be hard, but I love my job. I love it so much.
0: Yeah. I can imagine that that could also be rewarding. Do you follow these patients through birth at some points?
1: Sometimes. Sometimes Mm. um, if they end up being followed by our fetal care and treatment center at UC Davis, then um, there's these weekly presentations where they'll update us on uh, what's going on with this case or where are they at, what's the delivery plan, that kind of stuff. So for the most part, most of my patients, it's good news. It's not like these horrible things every single day. And mm-hmm. so usually once I'm kind of wrapped up, um, giving them their results, having that conversation, giving them the good news, kind of send them on their way usually.
0: Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> now, this is a topic I really wanted to, to address with you because I mean, you've got a three and one year old, right?
1: Yes. He, he'll be one on Christmas. Oh, and then- okay.
0: Christmas day, baby. Huh? Oh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, You're going to have to double up the gifts.
1: I know. You can't be one
0: got, of those parents that just like, he gets gypped. You got to. Oh, know.
1: no, 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 that
0: here. <laughs> so, um, so talk to me about the decision to be, I mean, you're a working mom, you work full time. And mm-hmm. that is for people who are listening, who are not members of the LDS church, still kind of rare. Right? right. So talk to me about your experience as being an LDS working mother. I mean, how, how does that you know, how did it feel to make that decision?
1: I think it's something that I always knew I wanted to do. And um, my perspective is I don't
0: mean to interrupt you, but I want to start right where you just started. Okay. What, what was it about? I mean, you know, I don't know, like I said, I, I have a few years on you, but like, that was not particularly encouraged mm-hmm. and I'm guessing it's still not technically encouraged. So what is it about your your experience that made you always want to be a working mother?
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Just today in church, there was a comment about how women are supposed to stay home and raise raise the kids. And I was like, mm, okay, interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I hate blanket statements like that, by the way. We'll talk about completely
1: that. Completely agree. I think part of it, my mom was always working full time when I was growing up. She was a single mom, so she had to be. Um, and I had people make comments, like other girls in the state, like when I was a youth and young woman's making comments like, oh, well, it says in church that your mom's supposed to stay home and women aren't supposed to work and blah, blah, blah. I was like, relax. You want me to be starving and homeless? Like, get off Rest. my back. Like, Leave me alone, kid. What do you know about anything? Right. Um, I think I've always been very ambitious in school and I've always really liked school, which it's not really typical. Most people don't like school. I love learning. I love school probably because it's something that I excelled in and I did well in. And I think I derived some of my self-worth from that when I was younger, which isn't necessarily healthy, but it is what it is. Um, and so I was always very ambitious in my schooling. And I think it was always important to me to be educated. And then I'm like, well, you should do something with that if you have an education and not to say that uh, people who stay home with their kids aren't doing anything. I think that that's, um, even if you are a stay at home mom, I think it's still extremely important to be educated because you're the one teaching your kids primarily, or you should be. Um, and I, I just think that it's very, very important for people, particularly women to be educated, um, for a variety of reasons that we can, we could spend a long time talking about, but, um, I had kind of mentioned earlier, I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to be a doctor. I realized after a while, I didn't really want to do that. I don't like touching people. I don't want to deal with all the nastiness that comes along with being a med student and a resident and all of that. Um, So the best part of my job is I get to work with patients. I get to have these really cool cases, learn about really cool things. And I don't have to touch anyone along the way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is interesting because, yeah you know that you brought up, you know there are so many people out there. well, the church says, yeah, but do people understand that there is a difference between like commandment and guidelines? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying like not everybody there's a reason why we have personal revelation, and that is that it's not a one-size fits all gospel
1: mm-hmm.
0: So just because you make the decision, it's like if somebody out there, their, their husband, a husband, a wife come together and hopefully pray about it and come to the revelation that one of them should stay home. That's good for them. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a situation where no, that's not going to be good for anybody to have you staying home, um, then, you know, that is the revelation and the decision that your family has come to. And that doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong or that you're doing it bad. It, I am very much, this is something I've, you know, I used to be the the hardcore, like, you know, the hardcore guy that, you know, was just all about, you know, oh, you don't do this. You don't do that. No, no, we don't do that. We don't drink caffeine. We don't, you know, do any of these things. And then I realized, I go, you know what, if you have a temple recommend, and I mean, I remember hearing a, a, a general conference talk where they said, if you have a temple recommend, it means you're being recommended to God. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, then that's enough, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. everything else is a personal decision, and you just respect it. If you don't, if you want to, you know, if part of your culture is tattoos and you want a tattoo, hey, I wouldn't do it, but you know what? That's good for you. You know, mm-hmm. you want more than one earring because you got a migraine thing and you want to get something pierced or whatever to help fix that. That's good for you. You know, mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to explain that to everybody. Anybody, and yet I think that a lot of people especially people like in your position, feel the need to explain themselves when they shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. And, um, do you feel though, do, do you feel like, I mean, I think I've heard a lot of working mothers, especially with young kids have mommy guilt when they go to tr- when they go to work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you feel, and it's probably hard for you to say, cause you only have one experience, but do you feel like that's amplified by your background in church?
1: Um, maybe I think, well, like I had mentioned before, like, I just don't really care what anyone else thinks or has to say about it. Um, cause I think even like if the church is saying like, Oh, like a mother should be like nurturing and whatever. Like, okay, I can still be nurturing when I get home from work. Like it's not mutually right. exclusive. Like you
0: can do both. Right. Um, well, you also have an experience with a mother who was nurturing and also working. Right. So different.
1: Yeah. So. Um, definitely some guilt, like I'm gone from my kids for 11 hours a day, five days a week. And that's not necessarily easy as much as I love my job. I love my kids more. I would love to work part-time three days a week. That's the dream.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, cause I would still be able to get to do what I love in my job and helping people having these really cool conversations and helping people understand these really complex things that I love. And I think I'm really good at. Um, but I would also love to be with my kids more. So there's definitely some aspect of of guilt and wishing that I could be home more. Um, I think there's days where I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to be a stay at home mom. I would love it. We'd have so much fun. And then some days I'm like, I could not, <laughs> no way. <laughs> right. So I think part-time yeah. is is a really good deal if people can do that, but um, we're we're not quite there yet. So definitely some of that, I think, In terms of the church aspect of things, I think some people just don't get it. They're like, oh, can you do this? Can you help with this? Can you do all these things and responsibilities at church? I'm like, I don't have the time in the day to do that. I leave at 7 a.m. I get home at 6 p.m. I'm immediately feeding my kids dinner, putting them to bed, and then cleaning up and getting everything ready for the next day. So I wish I could. I wish I had more hours in the day, but I think um, some people just don't get that. Yeah. If they don't work outside the home.
0: Yeah. That is very true. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think people, mem- people within who, who aren't members of the church I, or who have never been members of the church. I don't think they realize how much of a commitment, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a religion where you're just going to church on Sunday. It's an every day, all day. It becomes a part of your identity situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you and I both served in the uh in the missionary correlation. And mm-hmm. I gotta tell you, like that Wednesday at eight o'clock or whatever it is is rough. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean it's it's rough to get there. And you know, there uh you know, they there are all these volunteer things you gotta do. Cleaning the church, you know, if you're if you're you gotta if you're in a higher calling, you know, because uh, you were in the Relief Society presidency, right? Yeah. You are in the Relief Society presidency, right? Or you? I got released the... a
1: couple months ago. So I was doing that for about a year. Now I teach Sunday school. Lexi's in my class, actually.
0: Ah, fun. Okay, great. And so so the interesting thing about that is, though, is that, like, uh, I know you were a counselor, but I'm sure occasionally you might have had to go to, like, ward council, mm-hmm. right? And if you're mm-hmm. a president, you got to do that every week. Yep. And, I mean, it's a grind. It's a grind to do that. And doing that as a working mother, that's it as it's almost like another part time job sometimes, depending on the calling you have.
1: Oh, that's yeah. Right.
0: Oh, and so, how do you balance all that? Uh, you, you just do.
1: You, sometimes yeah. you, it's just survival mode. Like one day at a time, you pick whatever has what's, what's the most important in this moment. What has to be done now or the soonest? What's the next deadline? Okay, get that done figure it out after that so i don't know it's hard it's busy but you just make it work
0: all right so i'm going to ask you this is kind of off topic question but i want to not really okay so you strike me as somebody i don't know you that very well but just in our conversation you strike me as somebody who's ambitious and driven mm-hmm. and i've noticed that most ambitious driven people have two things going on at the same time they have a superiority complex and they think <laughs> That they can do everything, and I'm speaking from experience, they think they can do everything better than everybody else. But they also tend to have a little bit of an inferiority complex, where they never mm-hmm. feel like no matter what they do, it's never good enough. Does that resonate with you, or do you think you have one or the other, or a little bit of both?
1: I would say historically, probably both. Uh-huh. I think that being a parent humbles you a lot. <laughs> so... Well, um, yeah yeah I think I just I don't really focus on comparing myself to other people like oh I can do it better than them or oh, I'm not as good as them like Mm -hmm. I think I'm more competitive within myself and Mm -hmm. like oh I need to be better than I was before or like I'm not getting any better maybe that like that kind of Mm -hmm. aspect of that so kind of same same principles apply but more so like within myself um yeah that's what I would say
0: for that but I'm I'm the same way, and, and like I said, I'm speaking from experience here because I just remember, I remember specifically uh, a few years ago I became a partner in my law firm, and that was like the big goal. And I've always had this thing where I was like, I don't know, I'm goal-oriented person. You probably were are too. And you 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 sit there and you go, okay, if I just get to this goal, then then it'll be a good, it'll be good, it'll be good, right? And then I remember getting to become a partner, and I remember. Leaving my boss's office when he told me I was voted in, and I go to my office and I sit there and I go. Okay, what's next?
1: Mm-hmm. And I was like,
0: Oh my gosh, it's never going to be enough. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so, like, uh, I think that that's you know, do you get some of that when you're like, you're like, oh, you're competitive within yourself. Do you feel like that sometimes? You're like, okay, what's you know, what's next? What do I what do I do next? What's my next goal?
1: I would say I was absolutely that way until I had my daughter and I think now that energy is more poured into my parenting sense.
0: Uh, totally. And
1: like, okay, what else can I research and learn about from these child development specialists to try to not mess up my kids too much? Everyone messes up their kids a little bit. Yeah, well, so, like, you you know, my kids will need therapy for sure. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But I would say, I pour that energy more into my kids now in terms of like, okay, what can I do not necessarily to make them the best, but what can I do to make myself be the best parent that I can be for my kids? And that looks different for everyone because every kid has different needs and every parent is different. So I'm not saying there's like one right or wrong way to parent, but what can I do the best for, for my kids?
0: Well, I'll tell you, you know, as somebody who, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's worked a lot of, a lot of hours as an attorney And, um, you know, some people think like I sometimes when I interview attorneys, they'll say something. This is actually going to be a a topic because somebody asked me a question on my for my Just Me podcast that's coming up soon that about this. And they asked me, what is uh, what's something that you hate to hear in an interview? And I Hmm. always hate to hear the words work life balance. And, I, and it's like, it's not because I don't want people to be able to go and work and do all this stuff or, or go and have fun, time with their family, but it tells me that they're not very good at prioritizing mm-hmm. because you very much can. I'm telling you, you know, how long have you been working now? Uh, about a year, almost a year. Okay. So you, you've been at it for a little, for a little bit. You absolutely can work a lot of hours and still have good quality time with your kids. Mm-hmm. But, I I work sometimes 60, 70 hours a week, and I still take my kids, my girls on daddy daughter dates, my sons on father son outings. I'm at almost every, you know, I can count on one hand the amount of basketball games and soccer games and all that garbage, like that I've missed, right? You can do all of that. It's just a matter of prioritizing. Yeah, maybe you're not going to be able to watch, you know, the newest episode of 90 Day Fiance right when it comes out, (laughs) right? Which, by the way, I do highly recommend. It's great. Uh, But but uh, you know, you can do all that stuff. It's just a matter of prioritizing. So if you have somebody who's trying to make you feel guilty as if like you can't be a good mom and work, then they just don't know they've never tried it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so tell me now, you got two, you got two kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many plan on have. Uh, No more, no more. more, You're you're like, no mas, we're good too. (laughs) Well, here's another thing I'll tell you just as somebody who's, who's got, whose kids are a little bit older. And that is that, uh, the best is yet to come. Like this, Mm -hmm. this part where you got the toddlers for me personally, like I've loved every iteration of my kids, but that Mm -hmm. was one I struggled with the most. Like they're just, they need all the help and they like, they're not very self-sufficient You don't even really, the jury's still out on what they're going to be like. You know what I mean? (laughs) And like, and, but now when I've got my kids now, like you got Lexi in your class, you know, she's 12, almost 13, 17, 15, 12 and 10 favorite time ever. Mm -hmm. Like they're all just so much fun and they're all just out doing crazy things. You get a sense of who they're going to be, right? you know, and all that. And you're, you know, you still could screw them up real bad, but like, you know, they're doing, they're, they're doing okay. That's the fun time. And So Uh so what's, what's next for you?
1: Oh man. Great question. I think honestly dropping to part-time like that as much as I love my job, we already talked about that. I would really love to be with my kids more. Um, so I don't know and see, see where that takes us. It's been, it's been a journey. I started grad school right after Avery was born. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know. It's, it's been a whole process. (laughs) I think, uh, finding more time to spend all together as a family now that Jeremy is doing something different in terms of his career and we have more flexibility. I think that's something that would be uh, really good for us because there were so many years that we basically didn't see each other. So Avery born. I started my master's program with a newborn. And like we had kind of talked about before, my husband's working 80 to 90 hours a week um, to out of necessity to support us, to help us live, to really put me through school. I could not have done it without him, beyond grateful for all the sacrifices that he made in terms of having to work that much and piling on more of that trauma that we talked about earlier. Um, But that meant that we didn't see each other at all. He was always working, and then I was full 100% parent plus insane busy grad student. Uh, So that was really, really crazy. And so now that we've come out of that, out of the trenches a little bit, mm-hmm. um, hopefully up next is just more family time, more memories, and, and fun things together.
0: Yeah, a little bit of probably re relearning and reconnecting, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. you know those those years are tough on families when you're when you're grinding like that, and right. you still you still even though it's kind of calmed down a little bit, you're still having two little kids like that is it's a grind, you know, cause like, you, you know, it's not a, who wants the baby? It's which one do you want? And, right. You know, that type of thing and, and dealing with all that. So yeah, that's, that's great. Well, let me, let me ask you, um, appreciate your time. I'm sure you, you've got all sorts of things that you could be doing with your time. other than talking <laughs> to me. But let me ask you a few questions. I ask everybody. Okay. Uh, first one, what would you say is your uh, biggest success in life? Oh,
1: that's a loaded question I think because I, know, I think the, I, be. uh I think number 1 the first thing I would say I'm not going to give you one answer that's that's uh that's too hard to pick one <laughs> I'm going to uh, cheat you
0: you, you should have been a lawyer okay yeah
1: so I think the first one is going back to how I used to be so shy and all of that is the personal growth that I've had through my experience competing in pageants and, and all my other life experience as well, but just my own personal growth in becoming the person that I am today mm. who can get up on stage in front of thousands of people and talk about whatever. Um, just coming from that point of being so painfully shy before I'd say that's a huge success. Um, I think that my education, my schooling, my career, that's another huge success that I'm very, very proud of. And, um, Like I said before, I attribute a lot of that to my husband. I couldn't have done it without him. And then my last answer I'm going to say is my kids and instilling in them. I know they're still little, so they're still a work in progress. But instilling in them a love of Jesus, a love of the outdoors, and a love of reading. Mm. So those are all really important things. And I can already see that in my three-year-old. She's incredible. She's beyond smart and hysterical and... She's the best. Uh, But both of my kids love to read books. They both love to be outside. And I think those are really, really important things for character development.
0: Awesome. Man. So tell me what is your biggest failure in life and what did you learn from it?
1: Oh, I don't know. I don't. I think I made a lot of decisions that I maybe going back wouldn't necessarily make the same decision again, but I don't know that I would classify anything as a failure. I think in any circumstance you can learn from it, uh, whether something goes how you expect it to go or not. Um, I think just a general life lesson overall, not necessarily from one specific moment or example is just being able to pick yourself up and keep going dust yourself off keep moving keep grinding and um, don't get like weighed down and feeling sorry for yourself and feeling bad for yourself but just get up keep working keep going hmm.
0: you know i this just popped in my head i know we really didn't talk about it uh, too much but uh you know your mom single mom right and hmm. that probably came on rather suddenly and you know had to move in with parents doing those things uh difficult time i'm sure how much uh did your mother set an example for you on how to pick yourself up and dust yourself off like that
1: hmm. interesting we have we have an interesting relationship that's another thing to work through in therapy
0: oh, okay um, <laughs>
1: She definitely had to do that though. She was single mom, three kids, trying to go back to school, working full-time, all of that stuff. Um, and so there, there's definitely times that she had to do that. But I think for the most part, that, that's something I learned from a lot of different people in my life, not just yeah. from her or not just from one person, but just as, as an, a lot of different examples in my life that have taught me that.
0: Perhaps a better question, what I was really trying to get to is who would you say is the most influential person in your
1: life? Mm. Oh, my initial gut reaction is Debbie.
0: Really? Yeah. Let's let's hear about that.
1: Oh, I don't know. I think my grandparents too. We talked about my grandparents before because they like essentially raised us when my mom was at work. Um, Mm -hmm. She of course did her best that she could. I Mm -hmm. think the majority of people are doing the best they can with the resources and information and skills that they have available to them um, in that time. And in that moment, but I would say my grandparents, definitely Debbie, I think she's just a really good example of being a good
0: person. She is, she, she, I would say like in high school, and i and you probably heard this on the podcast. I was telling her is that like in high school, she was so much better than us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, as far like, I don't, I often wondered why she was hanging out with us. Like, you know, um, she was probably easily, like, I, I, we used to always joke that we were number one friends, right? That was, our, uh-huh. we were the number one friends. And uh, she really was my number one friend. I would be, she would, I would call her, she, you know, and, and just vent about things. She was always around, always a a good person to to rely on and always had just like the most positive spiritual stuff to say.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It did not shock me at all that she wanted to go on a mission. (laughs) And I was, I was trying to talk her out of it and nobody could, you know, (laughs) interesting. So such a good person. She's the best. She is. So, well, okay. So Last question I ask everybody, and that is: someday, way down the road, you're going to pass away, and when you do, there will be a funeral. And when there's a funeral, someone's going to give your eulogy. What would be mm. the one thing you hope somebody says about you in your eulogy?
1: Oh, this is not something I've thought of because I hope this isn't coming anytime soon. Hopefully, right. I have quite a few years left. Right. Uh, uh, I think I would say, or I would hope that people would remember me as being like supportive of them and uh, supportive of their dreams and their goals, their ambitions, um, always cheering them on to reach those goals, whether that's my husband or my kids or my friends or even girls that I competed with in pageants 10 years ago. Um, I hope that people who know me or who will know me or who have known me in the past will remember me as being just supportive, always cheering them on, celebrating their successes and their wins with them.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Well, it has been very interesting getting to know you and hearing about these things. It's uh I've learned a lot about pageants and yep. I've learned a lot about the experience, uh, you know, genetic counseling. I've learned a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And also it's interesting to hear people's experiences uh with church that are so different. And I hope that somebody who's listening to this can hear this and realize that there, you know, everybody. I think everybody at one point or another. I know certainly I feel like they don't fit in the the cookie cutter Mormon box. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that box is really a fallacy. It's not. Doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Everybody you're looking at is dealing with something. They're just not telling you about it. And so, um, hopefully, this this shed a little bit of light on that as well. And uh Paige, it's been uh it's been awesome. I would say I can definitely see Debbie's influence. You're like a Debbie with an edge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, that'
1: as a compliment. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. It was it was meant to be. So all right. Well, if you've if you've gotten this far, we got a lot more exciting stuff coming up. Subscribe and uh Paige, we'll definitely have Jeremy on. Uh we'll have him on soon as well so we can hear uh, about what it's like to be a police officer. So that'll be fun too.
1: Yeah, that'll be good. Thanks for having me.
0: All right.